Morning, everybody. Hey, how lucky was that? A little bit of rain and coolness on Friday and Saturday, hey? Don't know about you, but I just breathed an epic sigh of relief after those couple of days this last week. I don't know what to do with myself when it's so hot. Um, so thank you, Lord. It was an absolute blessing. Listen, I just want to quickly take a moment um, just to echo something that, that Deb said, and just again welcome everyone that is online. Um, I know that the, from stories from this last week that a bunch of people are online today because people are sick in their home. Um, I know there's some people that are online because that's the only option that they have. They're overseas or out of town. Um, I know my mommy's going to be watching. Hey, Ma. <laughs> She's in East London. But, uh, and I also know that, that there are some people that, that, that is just the, the, this is how church is done for them at this season in life. And we just want to say we recognize that and we thank you so much for being part of the service anyway and choosing to be part of it. And obviously everybody that's in the congregation yet too. Great to have you with us. <clears throat> I want to tell you about a moment that, our, that, that we experience in our marriage preparation classes. So Cindy, my wife and I, we, we do marriage preparation classes, I don't know, three or four times a year. Uh, I absolutely love marriage pre preparation classes. Um, that's my own little story. But I want to tell you about a moment that I always find particularly fascinating during our marriage pre preparation classes. It's a very basic exercise that we do, nothing too complicated. That's kind of our aim, and there's nothing complicated about me. But, but the responses that are drawn out of people in this moment, I find to be, time and time again, just quite incredible. Um, in fact, I'd say of everything that we do in our marriage preparation course, it's a six-week course that we do. Um, there's you know, topics like money and communication, all that kind of stuff. Of everything that we do, this exercise has created, I think, some of the most beautiful and some of the most telling moments in our experience during marriage prep. In fact, I'm going to ask a couple to come up, and uh, their little boy has just woken up. Hallelujah. So, Cindy, you can step in there. Um, but I'm going to ask a, a couple just to come up here, just to illustrate what happens in our, in our marriage prep courses. <clears throat> Thanks, guys. This is Zama and Orient. I thought, okay, what's the best-looking couple I can find in the church? The Beckhams of Westville, <laughs> and uh, Orient and Zama, if you guys can just, yeah, just, just stand there for a couple of moments. So all we do in this exercise is we ask everyone to quieten down, which you're doing really well, and then we ask for the couple to move their chairs, we're all sitting around a table so that they can sit and face each other. And then we ask that they just look at each other. And in the quietness of that moment, just to hold that gaze. The responses that are created in this moment are really incredible. I think that's because the space between the two people is so full of significance. Sometimes we have people in the congregation, I mean in the, in the group who, who actually start to cry 
happy tears, no mistake, <laughs> happy tears, but as they, I think as they consider the fact that this is the person that they'll be standing across the aisle from on their wedding day, and that this is the person that will be their companion, their faithful friend, their lover for the rest of their lives, and the significant of all of that kind of dawns on them, and some of them are actually moved to tears in that moment. <clears throat> some people, as they share this intimate moment, start to giggle. <laughs> you know, maybe the moment just feels a little bit too intense and their relationship is not used to this kind of intense intimacy. They're much more familiar with fun and laughter, doing things together, shoulder to shoulder time. And so something in them pops and they start to giggle. And much to their own um, embarrassment, it's actually uncontrollable. They want to stop giggling, but they cannot. And they just you know, start giggling. Some couples cannot hold the gaze. And we see them looking in the basic direction of their partner, but effectively, they avoid the real contact and eye-to-eye contact. One partner invariably gets up to go to the toilet or you know, find something to do on their phone and always find that the saddest response of the lot. The intimacy is too much to handle. Then there's other couples. And they hold the gaze. They manage to relax into the moment. They're okay with this very powerful connection with their partner. I don't know about you, but I think it's a beautiful thing to see. Well done, Zama. Well done, Orient. You guys are great. You may take a seat again. <laughs> so lots of differing responses in that moment. And I shouldn't be trying to describe which response is right or wrong, but I do know that all the responses almost are very, very telling. When we invite somebody into an intimate moment, what happens in that moment between the two is a very, very intelling kind of thing. And I want to ask you to allow me now to shift the whole picture from what you saw up here, to shift the whole picture and to place you in a moment of imagination. And I want you to picture yourself sitting in a room with Jesus. Here's the question I have for you. How does that moment go down? What happens when you turn to Jesus? Does the moment maybe bring tears to your eyes? You know, maybe a song of worship comes to mind and as you consider the fact that you're sitting or standing in the presence of Jesus. Some people more appropriately would find it, sorry, would find it to be more appropriate in that moment to bow down and just to be silent before Jesus out of respect for him. Possibly, 
and I'm just being real that this also happens with me. Possibly the silence of the moment scares you a little bit. And you find that there might be an awkwardness about that moment sometimes. And you, and you rush away from it, frightened by the thought that Jesus actually won't respond or that his presence is an angry presence in the moment. Well, Scripture is full of these intensely personal counter, encounters between a person and Jesus, between one person, whoever it is, and, and another person, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And I want to take you to a moment kind of like that in Scripture where this happens, where one person turns toward Jesus and they, they share this very personal moment and then some very interesting things start to happen. I have to say, I love these stories of Scripture in the Gospels. I absolutely, that's my bread and butter of, of what I love about Scripture. I'm going through Isaiah at the moment. It's a whole different cup of tea. I'm plowing through it because I know I need to read it, but man alive, I'm finding it hard. There's, there's great parts, but there's so much of it that I find difficult. But these kinds of stories, man, I could, I could, lo- I could imagine them and live them for, for any day. I, I love them. So the passage that I'm reading today is from Mark chapter 5, verse 24 to 34. It's up on the screen, hopefully behind me. A woman who had suffered a condition of hemorrhaging For 12 years, a long succession of physicians had treated her and treated her badly, taking all her money and leaving her worse off than before. This woman had heard about Jesus. She slipped in from behind and touched his robe. She was thinking to herself, if I can put a finger on his robe, I can get well. And the moment she did it, the flow of blood dried up. She could feel the change and knew her plague was over and done with. And at the same moment, Jesus felt energy discharging from him. And he turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? I don't know if he said it like that. Maybe he said it gently. Who touched my robe? And his disciples said, what are you talking about? With this crowd pushing and jostling you, you're asking, who touched me? Dozens have touched you. But he went on asking, looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened, knowing she was the one, stepped up in fear and trembling and and knelt before him and gave him the whole story. And Jesus said to her, daughter, You took a risk of faith, and now you're healed and you're whole. Live well. Live blessed. Be healed of your plague. Just another beautiful moment in the Bible. So just some introductory statements, and we're going to be coming from the, at this, this passage from all different types of directions. Let's start with a fairly low-key fun fact about this passage of Scripture. And that can be found in the difference of how Mark, which is the passage we've just read, how Mark describes this moment and how the Gospel of Luke describes this moment. Remember, Luke was a doctor. Okay? Very important. Mark pretty much says doctors treated her badly and abused her. Luke, the doctor, effectively says 
nothing could be done with her. Okay? Very, very different. Um, and we must never forget, I don't know, I found that funny. I found it funny that the doctor's trying to back up the doctor's story, you know? And we must never forget that as we read the Bible, we will bump into the humanity of the authors of Scripture all the time. We will always find that, that humanity shining through. And we need to be able to discern when that is and isn't the case. That's just what I found a fun fact. Here's the most salient theme, the most definitive flavor of this passage. Okay? The most unavoidable part of this passage is this. Everything happens with a blanket of secrecy hanging over it. Secrecy pervades this passage. It seeps into almost every single part of this passage. It starts off with her identity. We don't know her name. We don't even know much of her context. And then it covers her illness. She bleeds from a wound that no one can see and that no one can name, not even the doctors. And then we see that she's also alienated and alone in the crowd. It's an enforced, a self-enforced secrecy that she's placed on herself because blood in those days was considered an unclean thing, a ritually unclean thing. She wasn't supposed to be with other people or was definitely not supposed to be in physical contact with other people. And so she would keep that thing, that little truth about herself a secret or she would always try to hide in a crowd. Hopefully no one knew that she was actually there. And then the secrecy moves to her moment when she touches Jesus. Again, it was a secret moment. She comes up behind him, unseen, you know, and touches his, him. She, she didn't want to be seen. She wanted to happen without any recognition, without anybody's knowledge, not even Jesus. So she sneaks up behind him, very secretive. And then it ends with her attempt to disappear quietly back into the crowd. You know, whatever's happened, whether it was a miracle or not, she, she secretly just tries to disappear again. So again, enforcing this element of secrecy. Secrecy and anonymity is everywhere in this passage. And there are so many interesting little rabbit holes that we could follow with the story if we were trying to just kind of discover more about this passage. Yes, just three things that, that you know, I find interesting. The one question that I have about this passage is, how did Jesus not initially see her? How does that fit into your theology? Where Jesus, Alpha and Omega, looks around and says, who touched me? Yeah? Is he asking the question because actually he knew who touched him, but for her benefit he asks the question so that she can, maybe. But if we do justice to that passage, it looks like just for a few moments he actually didn't know who touched him. And that's just one of those mysteries that I wonder about. I wonder also if this woman felt bad about stopping Jesus in his tracks. Remember that Jesus was on the way to the deathbed of a dying little girl. There's a leader in this, in this community that said, my, my daughter's dying, please will you come and minister to her? And Jesus on the way there and this lady steps in on his schedule 
and takes his time and his energy away from him. I wonder if she felt bad about that. Just something I wonder, wonder about. Or on the other hand, why didn't the dad of this little girl grab this woman, throw her out of the way and say, listen, there's more important things than your issues to, for Jesus to be paying attention. Why didn't he step into the market and protect his daughter? Yeah? I probably would have done that if my daughter was on her deathbed. There comes a time where even a pastor will say, listen, my daughter is more important than the ministry that you're going to receive right now. So those are just like little thoughts that I have about this passage. If, if we wanted to find some rabbit holes, there are plenty on offer here. But let's go back to this lady again. Let's place her center stage and contemplate or consider her a bit more. She is, after all, the main character of this passage, not so. She's the, the person that stands up mostly in our, in our thoughts. And, and the first question that I have is around that idea. What, I wonder what her name actually was. I wonder what her name was. <clears throat> don't know about you, but I had a number of nicknames as I was growing up. And uh, they seemed to change quite regularly. There was a new season that brought a new nickname into my being. Um, same with my daughters. Uh, my youngest, uh, Cora, was, was Button when she was like early stages. Because you know that whole thing is cute as a button, so she, her nickname was Button. Shay, my eldest daughter, her nickname in early years, even till today, is, is, is Shaky. We didn't realize it would be Shaky, you know, like Shaky. Anyway, for us, it was a lovable thing. Nowadays, I just, when I want to call my daughters by a fond, familiar name, I call them, hey, Dort, you know, short for daughter. And it's very functional, I know, but for me, it's an affectionate way of saying, hey, my beloved girl, I love you to bits. And that's why I call them Dort. So our names, our nicknames may change as the years come and go, but there was a time that this lady had a name. But her name was consumed by her issue. And some of us might find ourselves in a similar scenario. We're known by our issue as if that is the thing that identifies us most. I'm an addict. I'm divorced, I'm deaf, I'm just a grumpy old man, I'm getting old, I'm too young, and so the list could go on. And just like it's true that we can be defined by our issues, it's also true that, that some people are defined by their achievements. Work hard enough and people will start to identify you with your position and your accomplishments and your success story. You know, I'm a successful parent. Look at my trophy kids. I'm a wealthy businessman. Look at my epic car that I drive. I'm a great pastor. Look at the size of my church building or my congregation or my smart suit. I'm a powerful influencer. Look at my list of followers. And so it's, although it's weird that we call her the woman and we identify her, to identify her by her issue, fact is we do it to ourselves and others all the time. You know, maybe you even define yourself by your emotions or your status at work 
or amongst your friends. Maybe your lowest or your highest point in life is what defines you more than anything else. And just a warning that all of that can be very dangerous because the moment we start to believe that we are only what we, have do, what we do or what we have achieved or what we have gone through, when we identify only ourselves only by those things, it creates something inside us that can fester and infect the rest of our life view. Without fail, there comes a point where our false identity will battle against our identity in Jesus. More of that in a few moments' time. So let's notice also how this lady conducted herself or, or handled herself in this moment. Let's see what she did. And the only words that I could find to actually describe something of what this lady did is that she self-activated I don't often use language like that, but it just seems so appropriate. She self-activated. She didn't simply sit at home, although that's maybe where it started. She didn't simply sit at home, worrying, stewing about a situation. She wasn't stunned into utter inactivity. Effectively, she, say, effectively she says, I'm going to get myself into a place that will move me forward. And starts off with her visits to the doctors and, and they became a disappointment. She doesn't give up. Now we see her taking a step of faith and she moves towards Jesus. And later Jesus describes that step. She says, daughter, you took a risk of faith. That was the step that she took to go forward. And folk, it is a critical thing for all of us to realize we need to take that first step towards health. We need to know what it is to self-activate. <clears throat> Let's notice the process that she went through. She heard about Jesus. I don't know, she was with some friends or some family members and they'd spoken the name Jesus and the miracle, miraculous things that she had done, done. She heard about Jesus and that's always an important thing. The Bible says faith comes from hearing. So let's not underplay the importance of hearing about Jesus. But it also says do not simply listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Instead, do what it says. Get into action, make a decision, move in a direction, find a conversation. Take the initiative of your own life. Hearing about Jesus isn't the full picture. It's not going to make you better because you took good notes in church. You could go to every life group, belong to every church service, be part of a great LTC, Life Transforming Conversational Group, and you could do all of that stuff and still get worse because all it's actually achieving is satisfying your intellectual quest for God or just a basic fascination for this God figure that you've heard about. So to be clear, this woman didn't get healed because she heard about Jesus. We must, don't get me wrong, we must put ourselves in the path of hearing about Jesus and hearing from His Word, words of grace, Yes, we need that. Words of forgiveness and correction and love and acceptance and meaning and encouragement and joy. But she wasn't healed by hearing about Jesus. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak. 
Here's the order. She heard. She then came. And she pushed herself through all the obstacles of all those offensive people in the crowd. And then, then she touched Jesus. How many of us end our moment with Jesus by simply hearing about him? An interesting thought, an intriguing theoretical tidbit about Jesus. And we end our moment with Jesus by simply hearing about him. She says, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Fascinating, I find it fascinating that once she had touched him, then she snuck away, as we said earlier, into the anonymous crowd. Snuck away. Okay? And I wonder again, why did she do that? What's, what's the impulse behind her sneaking away? Was she embarrassed by it all? Maybe, maybe it was a lady's issue that she felt a bit awkward about. And that's understandable. The crowd doesn't need to know about that. Did she feel so unworthy that to receive a gift of such awesomeness, such incredible gift of healing, um, and she felt so unworthy that it was just a little bit too overwhelming. So best, I just get out of here. It was just massive. I need to go process it somewhere quietly alone. Maybe, maybe she knew Jesus was on his way to heal that little girl. And so she didn't want to get to have a big thing about her own issues. Jesus, just thank you for the healing. Go now, go do your thing. I don't know why she tried to sneak away into anonymity. But maybe, maybe for her, her faith journey was a private thing. You know, what happens between me and God is no one else's business. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's kind of like physical intimacy between a man and wife. No one needs to know about that. That's a zone just for me and my wife. What happens between me and God is personal. It's intimate. Look, it's true that many people make their faith journey into an exclusively private thing, a deeply entrenched private thing. And my guess is that a bunch of us sitting here or even watching online also believe that this is a strictly private experience. And I just want for a moment to interrogate that with you. Are you the kind of person that may receive an immense gift from God and then you sneak away as quickly and as quietly as possible into the crowd? into anonymity, into the background, hoping not to be seen, heard, or noticed, despite the immensity of the gift. Has it become a default train of thought that this is a thing, whatever happens from God, that happens between me and Him alone, no one needs to know about it. And at times, let me say, that is good and right, that secrecy is good and right. A word comes, a gift comes, a surprise comes and you sense this shouldn't be spread around. It's hinted at in that verse that says we mustn't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. But notice, Jesus very quickly outed this lady. Who touched me? In that moment of secrecy, Jesus says, who touched me? And you can imagine the cringe moment she went through. Oh, my hat. 
whatever I was trying to protect with this veil of secrecy, I've now got to actually step out and you know, confess to it and, and, and own it. And the cringe factor that she went through in that moment when Jesus said, who touched me? Sometimes our private moments need to spill out there because those private moments should be more about the awesomeness of Jesus than us preserving some sort of image that decides against giving the glory that needs to be given to God. And that is His alone. Sometimes our privacy is utterly inappropriate. Last observation about this little moment and this lady as we, as we wrap up this meditation, more of a meditation than a sermon in some senses, but last little observation. The secrecy, although it was ended very firmly by Jesus, as we've just said, the secrecy I also think is the strength of this moment. There's massive blessing in the secrecy. You know, sometimes secrecy needs to be broken, but it was a secret moment with Jesus that led this lady to find a miraculous moment of salvation. She was surrounded by people, but in a sense, they may as well not have been there. They were just the backdrop of the moment. So intense was this interaction with Jesus. And we see this in a hundred moments of Scripture. We think of the thief on the cross. He has a guy going through untold agony as he's dying on the cross. People are busy standing at their feet, some of them throwing accusations and laughing at them. And he's having a private, inter intimate moment with Jesus. And he turns to him and says, remember me when you get into paradise. And Jesus says, today, you'll, there was this, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there was this intimate moment. This intimate moment between him and Jesus that, that, that somehow dealt with the pain, somehow dealt with this aggressive crowd, the, the Roman soldiers. There was this intimate moment that dispelled all of that stuff. Think about the prodigal son. You know, the son that was away there in a distant land and squandering money and filling his life with shame and all kinds of horrible things. And he finally convinces himself that maybe I can go sit at my work for my father. And he, and he comes towards his father and his father runs to him and throws a cloak around him, puts shoes on and a ring on a finger. And, and, and he absolutely loves him. And there's this intimate moment between the father and the son that again just deals with that, that shame and that, that, that embarrassment that the son had. It was again this moment between, between the father and the son, an intimate one-on-one -on -one moment that defined that whole thing. Think about that other beautiful passage of that lady that comes to Jesus. And he's in a room full of theologians and local leaders and hotshots and lanies and people that knew of this lady's sinfulness and she comes to him and because of all of that stuff that's on her life, in her life, she comes and she cries over Jesus' feet and then dries his feet with her hair. Again, just such an intimate moment. Yeah. Who cares who else is in the room? Me and Jesus. This is where I'm finding my healing, my forgiveness, Peter, and there's lots of those stories. Peter, as he confesses his failures to Jesus and so on. Folk, on a certain level, our faith will always be secretive and intensely lonely. 
Because no one else can truly share the depths of my soul journey. It is mine to live. No one else can make the choices I need to make. No one else can, with qualification, no one else can turn to Jesus on my behalf if I refuse to do that. No one else can make those choices. They can hear about it. People can hear about my private moment with Jesus. And they can imagine what happened there. They can even potentially benefit from my private moment with Jesus. But fundamentally, my faith boils down to only Jesus and me. Your faith boils down to only Jesus and you. That's the fundamental building block. Okay? If that is true, can you see the danger of my faith being only about going to church, attending life groups, being involved in life-transforming conversations, etc., etc.? Serving, never say, but never settling on the quietness of my soul for a life-filling moment shared only between Jesus and me. When we try to live our faith only through the experiences and the thoughts and the opinions of others, yeah, as critical as those things are, because all of those feed our soul and our moments with Jesus, but when it's simply defined by other people's experiences, then we are missing out on the lifeblood of what makes a relationship with God real and true and awesome. And we find that there's this empty ring to our faith because it's only based on what other people say as opposed to moments of Jesus in me. More than anything else, our faith must be defined by moments where it is just Jesus and me. That moment can, I believe, be found in a crowd, just like that text says, that story we've just read. It can happen, that moment can happen in a crisis, an immense crisis that feels truly overwhelming, that quiet moment between Jesus and me can be found. can be found in a boardroom. can be found in a classroom. can happen next to a deathbed. can happen on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. I heard a story last week of where a guy found this moment on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. This moment between Jesus and me. It must happen. It must happen during the singing of our worship where in a very real way, the music starts to fade. And things are stripped away and I simply come to Jesus and it's just Jesus and me. It must happen as we speak in words of prayer, where moments are shared between Jesus and me. Folk, wherever we are, we can turn towards Jesus. And there, in that space between him and me, we can find the true definition of ourselves, the true definition of our challenges, the true definition of our future, the true definition of our past. In that space between Jesus and me, everything starts to find its true place, its true weight, its true significance. Everything and everyone in that space between Jesus and me starts 
to find their true name, their true identity. This has become so central to my existence that I honestly cannot imagine life being lived in any way with God defining what marriage is, with God defining what it means to live in a country that is truly challenging at times, with God defining what it is to be a parent, what it is to do with my money. It's only in that space between Jesus and me that everything starts to be defined. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of worship. Let's pray together. Jesus, you and me, you and me, no one else but you and me. May this moment be found everywhere I go. May this moment be with you, that with you be what defines everything in my life. Amen.